0: They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome, useless eaters, to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is is to actually um, uh, create a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Welcome oddities to another edition of the Oddcast This is the odd man out. Thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with me. It's been a crazy time since we last talked. All the time is crazy time now, right? We live in just bizarro world, and it's just the way it is. But I wanted to bring you another podcast on Freemasonry and Kabbalah and the connections there. It's a continuation of the last show. So this is Freemasonry's Greatest Hits, Part 6. And this may be the last one on the Kabbalah Connection, but we'll keep it open. We won't uh, say for sure. Certainly, there'll be more shows on Freemasonry down the road because, obviously, it's such a rich subject. Uh, you could go so many different ways, and it's been so influential throughout the ages. So, today, I want to talk about some more famous occult writers who have talked more in detail about the connections with Freemasonry and Kabbalah. Uh, it's just a fact, as we've learned, that it is the basis of Freemasonry and the basis of all occult beliefs, or at least most occult beliefs. And I think that, therefore, it's certainly worth delving into much deeper because, as you guys know, it's been left out of a lot of conversations. A lot of researchers barely touch on it. So and that's why I've been doing these shows in particular so we can understand where all this stuff comes from and obviously it helps us to understand really uh, the world of orthodox Judaism and Hasidic Judaism because kabbalah plays such an important part there as well and so all these things are tied together and so without messing around too much i'll just go ahead and get into the show and uh, we'll have a conversation afterwards a chat if you will about some current things but Let's just go ahead and start off with a book by J.D. Buck. Now, he was a famous Freemason and heavily into the occult. He was one of the few occult writers, occult masons, who was willing to really kind of tell the truth about masonry and its deeper meanings. And this is a book called Freemasonry and the Ancient Gods. And he starts off here. This is under the title, When Did the Purely Jewish Influence Enter? He's talking about masonry, of course. Various alternatives suggest themselves in the answer to the question as to when the purely Jewish influence was grafted onto the craft. It has been proved conclusively that the Jews were never great builders, neither in the days of King Solomon's temple nor later. Now, this is going to kind of go against a little bit of what we read the last time, and I'm trying to kind of provide a a full picture for you and let you guys kind of decide what you think. So I just want to put that out there so, you know, we're honest about everything. Now, he goes on to say that the most probable sources are four in number A, at the time of King Solomon, B, from the Alexandrian Jews. C. Through the Kabbalists, particularly during the time of the Crusades, and D. In the 18th century, Deistic England. He says, Freemasonry could not have originated among the Orthodox Jews of King Solomon's days. Not only were they not builders, but their conception of God was, and still is, entirely different from that which underlies the Masonic ritual. The Jewish conception of the deity was that of the just dealer. Those who kept their contracts with him were certain that he would carry out his promises, not merely in the hereafter, but in this mortal life. Those who broke their contract with him would be made to suffer both here and hereafter, He is a personal God with a very distinct individuality. He is not an all-embracing first cause, but a person creator and judge. Justice is his outstanding characteristic rather than the tender fatherly love. Well, certainly he's talking about Yahweh, if you will. Uh, He goes on to say that this conception is very far removed from the Hindu idea of the C and of the AC, or of the creative, preservative, and destructive sides of the deity. Now, I'm not sure what C of AC means. I don't know how to find out what that would mean because I've looked up in Masonic books to find out, you know, they use initials for certain things, and I couldn't find out what those two things meant. It may be something super simple that I should know, but I'm just not sure. We'll go on. This latter conception is pantheistic, whereas the Jewish conception was and still usually is distinctly monotheistic and therefore hostile to the idea of the C and of the AC. This monotheistic conception was the one usually set forth in the Bible and was and is the belief of the Orthodox Jews. But there was another conception held in secret by many of the more mystical and learned Jews, and the typical representatives of this view were the Alexandrian Jews and the later medieval Kabbalists. Okay, again, that was from J.D. Buck, Freemasonry, and the Ancient Gods. Now here we have a quote from Swinburne R. Clymer, a leader of the Rosicrucians, Freemason. Says the. Kabbalah link, masonry in its purity, derived as it is from the old Kabbalah as a part of the great universal wisdom religion of remotest antiquity, stands squarely for the unqualified and universal brotherhood of man in all times and in every age. Every careful and unbiased student of history knows why the secret doctrine has been heard of so little since the days of Constantine. An exoteric religion and belief in a personal God blotted it out for self-protection. And yet, oh, irony of history. The very Pentateuch conceals it, and for many a student of the Kabbalah of the coming century, the seals will be broken. So this is just more of like what the Orthodox and Hasidic Jews believe is You know, of course, the first five books of the Bible are just allegories, or they can mean anything that you want them to mean, basically, depending on the rabbi. And uh, these guys can say all these things, and there's really no way to say that they're not true, because they're not really based on any kind of set system. Now, we go on to another occultist. Uh, This is John Yarker, okay, and he wrote... This book is called the Arcane School. As you guys probably know, they call some of these secret schools of the occult arcane schools. And he says in here, Ancient Mystic Oriental Masonry, its teachings, rules, laws, and present usages which govern the order at the present day. It is quite probable that the system of interpreting the Jewish scriptures was a part of the instruction of of the Bini Hanabim, or Sons of the Prophets, alluded to in Samuel. According to Clemens Alexandrinus, these colleges consisted of classes designated sons and masters. And he observes that there were novices amongst the Levites, and that converts were divided into exoterici or proselytes of the gate, and trinsecti or proselytes of the covenant, perfecti. Reminds us of the perfectibilist, right? The Illuminati. We are informed by the book of Esdras that Ezra the scribe dictated to five men during a period of 40 days books to the number of 204 of which 70 last written were to be hidden or apocryphal and confined to the wise amongst the people. The gist of the Kabbalah is expressed in the words of Philo who says that The law of Moses is like to a living creature whose body is the literal sense, but the soul is the more inward and hidden meaning covered under the sense of the letter. The mystery is divided into three veils, and it is said to have been delivered by Moses orally to the Levites and the elders from whom it descended to the rabbis. The two grand pillars of the Temple of Solomon were important symbols, And Frank says that upon entering the first veil, we are in the vestibule, in the second, the holy place, and in the third, the sanctum sanctorum. The ten sephiroths, which represent the descent of creation from the divine, are also divided in three classes, which remain an indivisible trinity. The first three express the intelligible first manifestations. The second triad, the virtues or sensible world, and the third, the nature in its essence and active principles. As a system, it admits of a perfect assimilation with the wisdom religion of the old nations. It was prescribed in the Merkaba and the Chaldean book of Numbers that the neophyte was to be led to a secluded spot by an ancient who whispered in his ear the great secret." The Sefer Yitzira, which it is argued from astrological allusions therein to be as old as Abraham, says, Close thy mouth, lest thou should speak of this, and thy heart, lest thou should think aloud. And if thy heart has escaped thee, bring it back to its place, for such is the object of our alliance. The European Jews had an association called the Order of Elijah which is said to be mentioned in the Mishnah and Gemara. It had passwords, signs, and countersigns, and is believed to have been in existence in Poland and Saxony at a very early period. The Masonic Royal Arch degree has drawn on the Kabbalah and Talmud, but periodical revisions have taken place. He goes on to say that the Wise Man's Crown, 1664, has the following... So I suppose that's a book or some sort of writing. The late years of tyranny admitted stocking weavers, shoemakers, millers, masons, carpenters, bricklayers, gunsmiths, hatters, to write and teach astrology. This latter society, Ashmole terms, the mathematicians. It held an annual festival which was active in London in 1648 and again in 1682. Even Wren was more or less a student of Hermeticism, and if we had a full list of Freemasons and Rosicrucians, we should probably be surprised at the numbers who belonged to both systems. It included a study of the Jewish Kabbalah, and a Dutch Jew was exhibiting a model of Solomon's temple in 1675, and he would be likely to draw upon the Talmud and Kabbalah in his explanatory lectures. For the Kabbalah has a branch which possesses a semi-Masonic character in architectonic gematria, which refers to the construction of the words from numbers given in the Bible when describing the measurements of the temple and the Ark of the Covenant in relation to man himself. So again, that was from John Yarker, the Arcane School. Now, we're going to read a little bit from A.E. Waite's Secret Tradition of Freemasonry, Volume 2. He's got a lot of information in that book on the links between Freemasonry and, of course, Kabbalah. And on page 191, he has The Grades of Kabbalism. We'll read a little bit. There's way too much to read everything, but hopefully this will help us to understand a little bit better. We have seen in the content of the later rites so far as the elements of the Magi are concerned. There are detached grades, known by their titles only, which suggest more express intentions and perhaps a fuller realization, but it is impossible to speak concerning them. The position of Kabbalistic grades is similar in all respects. I set aside those which convey intimations in their titles, but have nothing corresponding thereto in the rituals themselves. The office of some collections seems akin to that of creating large expectations in the names of degrees, but they furnish a morality only or a labored discourse on an aspect of the philosophical kind, and this was understood at its period. In the Rite of Mizraim, There is a considerable show of communicating the tradition in Israel through the medium of certain grades. One of them is Sovereign Prince Talmudim. That's interesting, right? Sovereign Prince Talmudim, which is of a grade of erudition in doctrine. There are others which speak a similar language of vague and delusive promise. Nothing follows therefrom, and the recipient is left with a doctrinal illumination which is of much the same value as his licensed rank among the supreme commanders of the stars in the 52nd degree of the system already cited. It would be a waste of time to speak of these inventions or others of the same order which would enter into a classified list. In a work of the Kabbalistic tradition, I have mentioned a degree entitled Knight of the Kabbalah, and have shown that its speculative thesis is concerned with the mystery of numbers, developed rather curiously. I recur to it only that I may put on record one point which was omitted. As may be expected, the grade does not represent even a reflection of the knowledge concerned with its supposed subject. It illustrates, however, the prevailing sentiment of the period about which I have spoken otherwise. Those who were thoroughly indoctrinated, respecting things cabalistic, approached the tradition of Jewry, as we have seen solely as an instrument for the conversion of Israel, and this rumor of its assumed office filtered down into regions where there is no trace of acquaintance with texts at all. The anonymous compiler of the Kabbalistic grade under notice presents his thesis on numbers so that he may enlarge upon Christian aspects. For him, the unity of Numbers corresponds to the notion of the Logos, and for some purely arbitrary but not expressed reason, he lays down that this word is incarnate in the bosom of a virgin. That virgin also inexplicably on the hypothesis represents religion. The triad in Numbers recalls naturally the three theological virtues and the mystery of the Trinity in unity. The number four is above all things the cardinal virtues. Six in some mysterious manner conveys an imitation regarding the coming of the liberator in consequence of the fall of man. And seven is the instituted sacraments of the Catholic Church. Twelve is in correspondence with the twelve articles of faith in which the creed or symbol of the apostles may be divided. It is also the apostles themselves and it is the twelve stones of the mystic city of the Apocalypse. The ceremony, which is held in an apartment termed a Sanhedrin, opens symbolically at midnight and closes at dawn of the day, the master or president being saluted as most profound rabbi. The candidate is announced as a knight of the Golden Fleece, so that it is neither a detached grade nor part of a rational sequence, as the qualifying title belongs to Hermetic Masonry, his aspiration is to be initiated in the sacred mysteries of the Kabbalah, and he undergoes an extraordinary ordeal corresponding to the four elements. Having been hoodwinked outside the lodge, he is stripped naked and thus is plunged into water, which accounts for the element in a drastic manner. His forehead is marked with ashes, and is the equivalent of the memento homo kia pulvis s is recited over him. This being the trial by earth. He is then suspended in the air, and finally his right hand is passed over a brazier of burning coals. When he is reclothed and the obligation is taken, it has to be signed with his own blood, and he is then restored to light. As the reward of this terrific experience, he is informed that a Kabbalist is one who has learned by tradition that the sacerdotal art is also the royal art. He is further recommended to study the mysteries of religions and the harmony between them. If he has a chance to succeed, he will arrive at the summit of the true felicity, which is the sole end of masonry. It seems just to say that even in Memphis and Mizraim, no candidate has fared so far and hardly to attain less or as little. There is, however, the night of the Kabbalistic sun, and it combines alchemy— with the forlorn substitute which it has to offer as the secret tradition in Jewry. Now, John Yarker, he mentioned the rite of Memphis and Mizraim, and what that is is a another Masonic rite. It had up to 90-some-odd degrees. They said it wasn't a part of official Freemasonry, and they still say that today, but it exists now. It's just not under the Mother Lodge. And it came out of Egyptian Freemasonry, which it's my understanding that came about in 1777 and was created by a character named Cagliostro, who, who seems to be pretty important in occult history. And we look into Cagliostro, we don't know a lot about his origins, but numerous sources do tell us this, and this is from Masonry Today, that Cagliostro was born Giuseppe Balsamo in France, and was referred to as Joseph Balsamo. He was born to a poor family in a place called Albergheria, which was once a part of the Jewish quarter in Palermo, Sicily. Now, a lot of people say that he was most likely Jewish, but we'll never know for sure. But that would explain mixing some of the Jewish and Christian traditions in this Rite of Memphis and Mizraim. But that is something that we can think about and maybe kind of keep on the side to kind of return to at some point. And while I'm on this subject, let's talk about Sabbateanism and its influence for a second. Some people think that Shabbatai V, as we've talked about in the past, who was considered a Jewish Messiah, year 1666 was his heyday, if you will, and many Jews from around the world gave up everything to follow this guy. And he was known for his antinomianism and he was kind of like, telling everyone to disregard all the laws and different things of Judaism, which I'm sure that many were glad to do because the laws were so onerous, and they still are. But I think that his influence has carried on far past his time. And we know that, I think it was odd like 50 years later, a guy named Jacob Frank claimed he was the reincarnation of Shabtai Zvi, And so these guys were very interesting characters because they were kind of trying to turn Judaism on its head. But what they did was they mixed other religions in, Christianity and Islam. Because after all, Sheptai converted to Islam. And many of his followers, not all, probably not the majority, but many still followed him even after he converted because they said that that was all a part of a plan. And so... His predecessor, Jacob Frank, is famous for telling people that you have to convert or pretend to convert to, you know, whether it be Christianity or Islam, whatever the culture is that you're surrounded by, you need to fit in with them to kind of get your agenda going. And so many people think that that's kind of what has happened as far as uh, maybe the Catholic Church and even Protestantism to a degree. And that would make sense because you see a lot of these Protestant pastors, these TV evangelists, bringing on these Messianic Jews. And what they don't tell you is that these guys haven't given up their mysticism and their Kabbalah. So they're bringing on these guys who are occultists. And just because they're talking about Jesus, they make us believe that they can be trusted when these guys are really as I said, occultists for one, and I really think that they may be still influenced by Shabbatai Zvi. V. I think that people should look into what he believed and what people believed about him. We know that the Don May is still around, and the Don May are Sabbateans, and there are actual rabbis who follow Shabbatai V openly to this day, but Many people believe that the Hasidic Judaism and the Belshem Tov was influenced by Sheptiz V. Uh, he came around right after Sheptai And so I think we have to take a lot of these things into consideration. And we also need to take into consideration the Moranos and the Conversos. And what were they? Well they were they were Jews who were forced to convert to Catholicism. And many did that, and many escaped, and many join the Catholic Church, and so it's thought that perhaps this idea of a, a Messiah, you know, Christianity has that view, and many Jews say that originally Judaism had nothing to do with the Messiah, and not all Jews are Messianic by far. So you're seeing these groups like Chabad, who are very Messianic, and I'll remind you that Crown Heights and Chabad, the headquarters there, that's where the tunnels were dug that were, I don't know if they were in the news, but they are certainly on the internet. These tunnels that these Hasidic Jews had burrowed underground at the main hub of Chabad, Lubavitch, in New York City in Crown Heights. But anyway, I don't want to get off the subject. Chabad are proponents of Messianic Judaism. That's what I'm trying to say. And so many people think that this whole idea of the Conversos and the Muranos, they weren't true converts, and that's understandable to a degree. But many people think that the Catholic Church has been infiltrated by conversos and Moranos. And some people think that the Jesuit founder, Ignatius Loyola, was a Morano or a converso as well. And we don't know that for sure, and we probably will never be able to find out. But it would kind of make sense, because it seems to me that... You know, people want to blame everything on the Jesuits. The Jesuits are the new Illuminati in conspiracy world, you know, alt-media. Everything's blamed on the Jesuits. It's kind of a blanket statement because, as I've said before, you know, every nun, every professor, every janitor, every person that works at a Jesuit school, and there are many, are Jesuits. But to be a Jesuit priest is something much different. It's a very lengthy process as we've talked about in the past. And I think that a lot of people get lumped in with Jesuit, and it becomes this convenient boogeyman. You know, and I used to be that way too. But I think that we need to think a little bit more deeply about these things. I wouldn't doubt if the Catholic Church and the Jesuits have been infiltrated by the Muranos and Conversos and Sabbatans. One thing that leads me to believe this is, look, you can say anything you want to about Catholicism. You can say anything you want about Jesuits. Nobody's going to call you, well, very few people will call you, uh, you know, racist or a bigot or anything like that. Anything goes, basically. And look how the Catholic Church has done in the last 30 years. Their PR has been horrible. It's not, it's as if they don't even try to defend themselves and then they don't handle these scandals well at all and it just makes more and more people dislike the church and I totally understand that and it seems to me that this has to be purposeful it has to be purposeful uh, I mean they are not even trying to further or grow the church and so I feel like it's being destroyed and that's one of the things that uh, or orthodox judaism vows to do is destroy of course Catholicism, which they see as the remnants of Rome, and, of course, Christianity and the West all altogether, because that is the end goal. And I don't want to get too far off on this tangent, but I just think that we need to think about how all these things could possibly fit together. You have this idea in Messianic Judaism, in Chabad, Lubavitch, in Sabbateanism, of a Messiah coming to rule with an iron sword, and he will convert everyone... By his charm, and his, you know, people will uh, look at him and they will respect him and want to follow him. But those that don't, well, they'll be beheaded, they'll be taken out. And so I think that uh, it's just something that we need to include in our studies. And I just want to remind people about all of this. Now, let's continue here on A.E. Wade and what he was saying. He finishes this section here with. I confess that I should have expected a better result from the grades, which by their titles, at least, are supposed to have borrowed from Kabbalism. The connection between the craft and the substance of Jewish tradition is curiously intimate, as I have shown in earlier sections, but the reflection into the high degrees is less, if possible, than nothing. The real explanation, I infer, is that those who knew at the beginning, though they left their evidence on the root matter of the mystery— had veiled it too closely for the recognition on the part of later brethren, who had nothing to guide them but their own unaided judgment. Well, it shouldn't surprise us that the higher degrees in Scottish Rite and York Rite have the Catholic influence. We've talked about that in the past, and we've talked about how Albert Pike allegedly took dozens upon dozens of grades and condense them to the 33 degrees of the Scottish Rite. And so, we don't know exactly why they have these Catholic names and influence, but it's just the way it is, and we should look more deeply into that on another occasion. Now, in a book called Freemasonry Interpreted, this is a much newer book than the other books that we've been talking about tonight says here, the Hebrew Kabbalah is one of these ancient schools and is pointed out by eminent masons as one of the sources of Freemasonry and a channel through which the ideas and doctrines of the divine nature as held in the mysteries and Eastern philosophies have come down to and become incorporated in this modern institution. J.D. Buck, as we mentioned earlier, states that Freemasonry in its purity has been derived from the Hebrew Kabbalah, as a part of the great wisdom religion of remotest antiquity. I believe we've read that before. That's in Mystic Masonry. Garrison says that it is in the speculations of the Kabbalah in which the traditions of the previous ages have come down to us, under the form in which we as Masons, and especially in the chapter degrees, are accustomed to receive them. The points of identity are so many, so various, and essential in the very structure of the order that I do not hesitate to infer, and I think every competently instructed Mason will agree with me, that at some period in their history, the Association of Great Builders of Western Asia, and which passed over later into the Masonic guilds of Latin and Teutonic Europe, had made or found the mystery of the omnific word an integral element of their secret science." an essential portion of the traditions and symbols of the Masonic order in the different degrees. While Fort does not concede the connection of Freemasonry with the Mysteries, he traces its descent and its outward forms from the ancient builders' guilds but concedes that the entrance into it of many heathen ideas, some of which are of a pre character, Albert Pike drew largely from the writings of Eliphas Levy, the Abbey Constant, a great Kabbalist, in whom Buck considered as knowing more of the occult science than anyone since the days of the old initiates for illuminating and illustrating Freemasonry. A candid investigation convinces us that Freemasonry is indebted in a very large measure to the Kabbalah for its philosophical ideas, its methods of interpreting the scriptures, its doctrines of emanations, its art speech its cosmogonical views, and its veils and glyphs. In a certain sense, it is a continuation of the Kabbalah under a different name and guise. He goes on to say that the Hindu philosophy exercised more influence upon the Zohar, the official book of the Kabbalah, than any other. The Kabbalah remained an absolute secret cult until the 13th century, when a quarrel arose between some of its adherents, Owing to this quarrel and to the conversion of certain Kabbalists to the Christian religion, the system was made public and its secrets divulged. Its principles were widely diffused and accepted, and it had many adherents from that time until the 18th century. Among these adherents were many of the most prominent and learned men in public life and in the professions, for a long time, Kabbalah was regarded by many Christian scholars as a correct method for interpreting the scriptures. This opinion is no longer held by any Christian scholars of note. We here give a summary of the teachings of the Kabbalah in those features in which we find a striking similarity to the Hindu theosophy, to the Greek divine genealogies, to the Fagrian conceptions of the divine nature and of origin of earthly life, and to the fundamental conceptions of the operations of the great architect of the universe of Freemasonry. So that's something that we might look into a little deeper at another time. In fact, I'm sure when we do just a series on Kabbalah itself, we will go back to this. It's got a lot of good stuff in there. Let's look at a few more quotes here. Aren't all religions equally true? No, all religions are equally false. The relationship of a religion to the truth is like that of a menu to a meal. The menu describes the meal as best it can. It points to something beyond itself. As long as we use the menu as a guide to do it honor, when we mistake the menu for the meal, we do it in ourselves a grave injustice. That was Rabbi Rami Shapiro. Uh, see a lot of Kabbalists Quote, Rumi, and Rumi was a Sufi Muslim. Rumi says, Jew, Muslim, shaman, and Zoriastran, stone ground, mountain, river, each has a secret way of being with the mystery, unique, and not to be judged. Then we talk about the lost name in Freemasonry. That's one of the main things that you'll read as you're trying to find God's lost name. It says here, the lost name in masonry from Kabbalah. And this is from Mystic Masonry, J.D. Buck as well. And these, uh, I go to this guy a lot because there's just a few of these guys that we've read tonight that will give you the real deep meaning of masonry. Most of it's just surface level stuff and they send you on these uh, wild goose chases or Maybe not wild goose chases, but only give you just a little bit, you know, because they don't want you to know the true meanings. He says here, This tradition of the ineffable name is brought into masonry from the Hebrew Kabbalah, and how it became lost is partly historical, at least. The ancient Hebrew priests evidently undertook to fit to the names of their tribal deities the symbolism and traditions of the Far East. If the Master's word were really a word at all, the deity of the Hebrews might perhaps represent it as well as any other. It is a question of phonetics, however, rather than the mere orthography. Beneath the Hebrew text of the Pentateuch lies concealed the science of the Kabbalah. The anathemas threatened for him who should alter by a single letter or yod the outer text had therefore a deeper meaning. The priests of many nations of antiquity were initiates in the mysteries, and as such they were monotheists, while the ignorant masses were idolaters. The monotheism of the Jews was of a robust character, and their priests and prophets had a hard time to preserve their people from the seductive polytheism and abominations of surrounding nations. The ineffable name was not only concealed, but terrible as an army without banners. Jehovah was jealous, revengeful, vindictive toward the evildoer, and tolerated no rival in the broad expanse of the cosmos. In no religion of antiquity is the anthropomorphic image of a deity so strongly denned and the creator of man and worlds made so exceedingly human. The Kabbalah, on the contrary, embodying considerable of the true and ancient secret doctrine, held a different idea of divinity. While carrying the tradition, therefore of the lost word, as the ineffable name of the deity, the symbolism was taken as literal fact, and the people who were commanded to make no graven image ended by making a gigantic idol, half Moloch and half man. Amid such contradictions, the symbolism adopted from the purer and gentler Arians was ill at ease and far from home. Rev. Dr. Garrison claims in a contribution to the history of the lost word appended to Foote's early history and antiquities of Freemasonry that the four-syllable name Jehovah was hailed by the Hebrews as the ineffable and that Adonai was used as a substitute. The high priest once every year at the time of the atonement entered alone into the Holy of Holies and there repeated the name. Then it says, the name blank was thus withdrawn from and finally lost by the common people. This is ingenious and too literal to cover the case. The old query, what is in a name, is, after all, not so easy of an answer. Or the answer might be everything or nothing. We go on to Albert Mackey, the Masonic historian. This is actually from A.E. Waite's Secret Tradition in Freemasonry, Volume 2. But he says, Page 44, Mackey, the American Masonic writer, though he had few intimations concerning the term of his subject, says that the search for the lost word in all of Masonry is the search after truth, divine truth, knowledge of God, And he then adds plainly that this knowledge was concealed in the old Kabbalistic doctrine under the symbol of the ineffable name. Well, all right, guys, that brings us to the end of this show. And as always, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it that you can take with you forever. It's one of the reasons I don't do topical shows. I want to do historical shows and shows that, you know, we won't forget tomorrow. I want to thank my patrons, and if you want to become a patron, just go to patreon.com forward slash oddmanout. I really appreciate it. I want to thank Dredd. I want to thank Cole. I want to thank Ashley. I want to thank that crazy bread man for being a covert co-conspirator. I want to thank Aaron. I want to thank Ruckus for being a producer of the show. You can check out Ruckus's work on alternatecurrentradio.com, or you can check him out on TNT Radio as well. Thank you to No Evil Shall I Fear. Thank you, Mark, from Husa Tonic Live. Check out Mark's fine work. Mark does a bunch of great work, especially on vaccines and COVID-19. Thank you, James. Thank you, Bill, for being a producer of the show. Thank you to the Mighty Kilowatt. Thank you, Sir Tim of the Tunnels. Thank you, Aaron. And thank you to my friend Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. Please check out all of Jack's fine content on YouTube and all your fine podcasting platforms. Now, I want to thank my podcasting family, AlternateCurrentRadio.com. Get over there and check out all their fine podcasting and music shows as well, especially their flagship show, The Boiler Room, which comes on every Thursday night. I want to also thank FringeRadioNetwork.com for carrying the show. And I want to thank you for listening again. Cheers and blessings, guys. And remember, their order is not our order.